how could somebody perceive persimmon notes in wine if they've never seen a persimmon before? What is this wine reminding you of? You've got to scan back through that memory bank and the things that are going to bubble up to the surface and where you're going to have that immediate aha reaction to are those things that are like deeply rooted in nostalgia for you. This is LA is Good For You, a podcast about the founders and funders who are building LA's most interesting companies. We are your hosts, Susan Kevin. For this week's episode, we interviewed Michael Keller, co-founder of The Blending Lab. The Blending Lab is a city winery and a wine tasting room. The lab also offers classes on wine blending, where you can walk out with your own very blend. And that's exactly what we've done. So um, we use this opportunity of having Michael on the show to open a bottle of wine, which I actually made at The Blending Lab a few months ago. And apparently, um, I should have drunk it by now. But it's surprisingly good, considering how long you've aged it. So um, I must be a winemaker in the making. I'd say so. Clearly. Um, You guys have been now running the Blending Lab for a few years. But how did it all start? Yeah, so technically speaking, I'd say it's been about four and a half years passing the four-year mark on in terms of like when we technically incorporated but the blending lab essentially started on a whim on a trip that we took to argentina so we you know the the bunch of us sort of met and bonded over wine i would have to say we, we all met in our various workplaces came together over this mutual love of wine and exploration ensued. So we would go up to Santa Barbara, Napa, Sonoma, do the weekend trips, do slightly longer trips. And we started to get a little bit more adventurous, like taking a trip to Peru. And how many people know that Peru has a wine country? That wasn't, it was certainly not the intent of our trip at all. We actually just went to, to go see Lima and then Machu Picchu. But Pisco is made from grape must, essentially. It's, you know, grappa-esque. So that means that there's a this wine country on the fringe of the Atacama Desert that's four hours south of Lima. So we hired a driver to take us there. One day, like, round trip. It was a bit crazy, but it's probably all you need. And then I, th- I think after that, we, we decided, you know, we really like South America. We hadn't been before. Let's go back to Argentina the next year, you know, hit up Buenos Aires, and then more specifically spent about a week in Mendoza. And in Mendoza, we had this sort of aha moment where we took a blending class because it's not like like wine's been done for thousands of years. So it's it's not that the blending element is super unique because so much of wine is blended. But these guys actually had a blending class experience in their tasting room in the center of Mendoza. And the four of us, the four of us that were on the trip took it in a private capacity. We literally forced our way into it. And we're sitting there going, how could something like this not do well in L.A.? And so that was ultimately the the genesis of the entire idea for the company. It was really about just allowing people to to blend with wine because it can either be educational and you can kind of take what you will from it, or it's just like a lot of fun drinking wine, right? Okay, so what happens at the blending lab? I know because I I, I took a class, but can you tell us? You know, is it a wine bar? Is it a blending lab? Um, what do you expect when you come in? You know, realistically. I would just distill it to something that's even simpler. Like we are a winery, 
right? So it all starts with the idea that we make all of our own wines from grapes that we're sourcing from vineyards, mostly around Paso Robles, but we do get a couple, like a white variety from Tehachapi, and historically we've gotten some wine from Santa Barbara. But like we are just like your common garage-style winemaker, or even most winemakers at most estates where we we just find good sources of grapes. We bring them down to L.A. and we do the production in L.A., and we turn it into finished wine. There's a blending component to it. So you can taste wines that are single varietals. You can taste wines that we've sort of lovingly and thoughtfully blended. And that's really the point of the tasting room. Walk in anytime, have a glass of wine, try a tasting flight, just like you would up in wine country, except for right with the convenience, you know, being in the heart of LA, which is really unique. Like that actually doesn't really exist. And so on top of that, you know, we try to do fun pairing events like wine and cheese. Sure, that makes a ton of sense. But then there's the blending class component, which is super important to us because it was the rationale behind the idea in the first place, where just giving people a chance to come in, you know, and, and not feel like they should know everything coming in and let them kind of explore and find out what they like and what they don't like. We talk about the details of like how to taste wine, and then you hopefully blend your own bottle to take home with you, and then you can share it with friends and family. It's like a source of pride, and it's like, look what I've discovered, and isn't my blend good? Right, I can make wine too. <laughs> so three of you who started the mm -hmm. company, um, you're all from marketing and advertising background. Did you know much about wine beside what you know? Trips to the wineries, and then going to Argentina, Peru. Did, did you have degrees in winemaking? Anything like that? Absolutely not. And this is where I, I would definitely say, like, sometimes, I, probably you read about it a lot, sometimes ignorance is bliss, like not knowing enough about what you're getting yourself into will probably get you through it. So for us, because you just like, you feel like you have to, right? Uh, so for us, none of us had real experience with wine. Um, I've always been interested in wine. I always say, like, I, I was like the weird kid in like middle school and high school who was starting to read about it and i think like nobody told me that you have to be super serious in, in chemistry and science to be able to get into a viticultural enology program at your cal poly's or your uc davis which are kind of synonymous with with wine in the world um so no i, I didn't i didn't get into to those programs so instead what i did is i went and i, I traveled to europe and I, I went to school in switzerland at a young age and i started experimenting with with tasting wines from various parts of Europe there. So if I if I went on a trip to Turkey, for example, like I was always the person who goes, let's try the Turkish wine. Like forget like finding a bottle of, of Bordeaux in Istanbul, like let's find the local stuff. Same with like Croatia, Italy, etc. So that I think like that's probably why when when I was maybe in that mindset at that young age, I've always dreamt that I would get into wine somehow. I don't know if it was maybe going into advertising or Wall Street and, and making it big and then getting super lucky and buying a vineyard. Or I probably never dreamed that I would would have done it this way. <laughs> kind of helpful that you went to college in Europe because obviously yeah. you had a head start. I did. Because, you know. I started drinking when I was 17. Here you go. Because that's that's when I basically landed in Europe for, <laughs> for school, which is like a little ahead of the curve. But yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, I remember my first bottle of wine. It was a saint Emilion from Bordeaux that I was sharing with a new friend at school, and I was completely disgusted by it and turned off by it. But I stuck with it. No, it was actually, it was too bitter and dry. Oh, wow. And it, gave you, it gives you that sort of burn when it, when it goes down, if you're somebody who's not like accustomed to the taste. So 
you know, interestingly, I guess like that experience like really stuck with me. And I think it's really helpful when you we have people come in and they're not very familiar with wine. They might taste the first wine and go, oh, this is terrible. And you can kind of empathize with them. So you can explain to them what they're what they're feeling. So you would feel differently <laughs> now if you had the same bottle of wine. Oh, totally. Yeah, I would probably think it was super silky smooth. <laughs> <laughs> you um, opened the blending lab by the farmer's market mm-hmm. and the Grove. Um, how did you choose the location? Um, we chose the location because we lived in the area for several years. And we always found ourselves walking to the Whole Foods, the Trader Joe's, or even the Grove on a regular basis. So we always felt like like that's a great part of L.A. where people actually do walk around. Because when you think of L.A., you think of people just driving everywhere and parking is a pain in the butt. So you, you would either want to be in a place where you have a ton of parking downtown maybe you have warehouse space but frankly those were going to be too big for us we definitely didn't have the money for it um and we felt like it would be harder to draw people in so you know we we chose that place because we felt like it's so it was an area where people literally could stumble across it and so it's or stumble out of it yeah and stumble out of it if they need to but (laughs) (laughs) technically i'm not supposed to say that (laughs) Uh, responsibly stumble out. Um, but yeah, so that, that area kind of serendipitously just like emerged out of contention or into contention. Um, it used to be a marijuana dispensary and the landlord has these grandiose plans for the block. So they, they kicked the dispensary out and we, I think we were one of the first people to stumble across it. We saw it in its original state and, and we still were able to see past the the kind of hell that was encased in that environment. Like you, you've seen the space. It's it's a 1,200 square foot commercial retail space that essentially at that point was probably five or six rooms, if you could even imagine that. So we, we had our creative goggles on and we're like, this is amazing. Knock all these walls down. You'll just have like this nice open tasting room. Oh, hey, by the way, there's this extension in the back that serves as a classroom that you could literally seal off. So for us, it's like there there probably would not have been a better place for all the things that we wanted to do. And the price was tolerable. So you you mentioned garage style mm-hmm. winemaking. I'm used to technology being made or startups, you know, happening in oh, the yeah. garage, but maybe not wine so much. What does that process look like? I mean, I think most winemakers probably just literally get started in their garage. If you think about it, if you can find a half a ton of fruit somewhere and bring that back home with you, like you don't need any permitting to turn that fruit into wine, which you can then bottle and distribute to your friends and family. You can't sell it, but you can technically make up to like 600, like 6,000 bottles or something like that, like a pretty hefty amount. As long as you're giving it away or consuming it yourself, like you can just sort of wipe your hands of of all the legal framework and also the health department too, which is, I think, well, don't quote me on that one. But I imagine like they they would be hard pressed to go around to every single garage checking if somebody was making like beer or wine. There are plenty of like people out there making kombucha themselves so that they can enjoy it and experiment with it and, and make the flavors that they think are unique to them. So the idea of garage style winemaking was like people in like the wine ghetto in Lompoc there are similar areas of, like, this is a thing. It's been a thing in France for hundreds of years. People just making wine off the, the, the grapes that they had. Like, you could just get a bin, put the grapes in, let them ferment, 
Maybe you have a barrel, maybe you don't, maybe you immediately bottle it, and you can make your own wine. So that's the premise of garage-style winemaking. For us, what that translates to is operating like this industrial office slash warehouse space in LA County, where literally it's like, right now it's it's heaven. It's just like bins and bins and bins of like 50 to 100 tons of fruit at a time fermenting next to each other. And then there's barrel rooms that are stacked floor to ceiling with barrels. Wow. So you guys are actually doing your own... Are you, you you mentioned sourcing? Mm-hmm. How are you negotiating with wineries? I'm assuming, as a startup, as a as a garage mm-hmm. style winery, buying half a ton of fruit from somebody isn't necessarily an easy process. What was that like? No, it's not. I mean, to be honest with you, we used networking to help us out with that, right? Which is probably how most people start any given business: is you you go to somebody who you believe to be an expert and you ask them for help. So those people are able to connect you with vineyard managers or vineyards directly that have available fruit. And they can vouch for it because one of the worst things that can happen in winemaking is you commit yourself to fruit where it doesn't the fruit doesn't turn out as you're expecting and, and maybe you wanted a ton and you end up with none. Maybe you end up with two. Maybe you end up with inferior fruit, fruit that's like raisined and you can't really use it how you want it to. So... For us, like, it was really important to make sure that we had vetted fruit. So just like how we carry out our day-to-day winemaking is not unlike how most wineries operate. We use winemaking consultants that just make sure that the process runs smoothly for us. And then we go up and we're there as much as possible to oversee all of the decisions. Like we're the ones choosing all of the fruit, all of the sources, and just saying like what we want to do stylistically. So how do you choose? I mean, you said choose mm-hmm. stylistically. Which how do you choose which varietals and say which lots you're going to choose? I mean, part of it, like, if you think about it, winemaking is the personal expression of whoever started the winery or whoever's making the fruit. Potentially, people probably get into winemaking or growing grapes because they like something specific. So somebody went to Paso and they planted grapes because they felt like it was a great region to grow grapes in. And then they realized that, oh, actually you can kind of push the envelope of ripeness on grapes. And the outcome is a slightly more robust, fuller bodied style of wine, which for certain people maybe sort of errs on the fruitier side, uh, but not always in, in every case. And so for us, like that's just what we like. So that's what we wanted to make. Like, you know, the last thing that you want to do is source fruit from Paso and try to make a some sort of like maybe like a Burgundian Pinot. Like that's yeah. just kind of weird. Like it, it doesn't jive. You you would like that's just not how the weather is. Yeah. So I mean, there are certain people who try to do that, but like that's part of the like modus operandi of like why I would choose grapes from Paso in the first place. I want that bigger, fuller-bodied wine. So how do you go about helping uh, people discover their palate? So they're out shopping around the grove somewhere and they pop in and they have a glass mm-hmm. of wine for, or they come to their cake tasting class. What is that experience like? That has been a learning experience in its own right. And what I find fascinating just in helping people through a tasting flight or specifically in the class is just observing how many different perceptions of sweetness there are in the world. If, if I ask you what you perceive to be a sweet, like what, what's an example of something that you think is sweet? first thing that comes top of mind ice cream 
ice cream. What kind of ice cream? Um, like the 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 fake stuff, like the soy so kind fig. of stuff. You know, and it has like the um, I'm blanking Halo Top. Halo Top. Halo Top is extremely sweet to me because of the fake sugar. Sugar. So the key operative there is sugar, right? You'd be surprised. I would say probably fifty percent of people would disagree with you. And to them, a sweet wine is something, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Like to them, a sweet wine is something that has more acidity, which is super interesting because that's a teachable moment when it comes to wine. Because right there, that is something that everybody can perceive in a glass of wine. Do they feel like it is acidic or not? And then therefore, is it sweet or not? Because the classic example of just describing sweetness for me is just getting alignment on if you were going to eat a strawberry or choose a strawberry at a store, how ripe would you want it to be? Would you want it to be underripe to the point where it's going to be kind of tart and acidic? Some people like that. Maybe that's what they had growing up. And so to them, that's the flavor that they're always searching for. And so when they see strawberries that are like that, they'll buy that strawberry. Some of us especially some of us who've had a chance to like live in, in places like Europe or maybe like farmland communities know what a ripe strawberry looks like. Like it's got that deep, dark, concentrated color. And so that you've got that perfect balance of sweetness and acidity. And that's probably the sweet spot for sweetness. People identify some acidity and a lot of sugar that's developed in that strawberry as being sweet. And then there are those of us who are like, no, sweetness is straight up jam. So you've taken that strawberry You've cooked the acidity out of it, essentially, and you've added more sugar on top. And it also has that texture, that thick, syrupy texture to it. So to me, that's that's sweet, but not not to everybody. So it's a very interesting challenge when you're trying to point somebody in the right direction as to what kind of wine you think they would like based on what they tell you their preferences are. You mentioned um, when we talked earlier that you, you created wine that had persimmon notes. We mm -hmm. actually have a persimmon tree um, in the front of our house and we had a harvest over the weekend, pl plenty of persimmons. And they, they go from like being really tart when they're not ripe to being super sweet mm -hmm. uh, when they're ripe. But you didn't put persimmons in the nope. wine. So how do you know it's got persimmon notes? Because it's like one of these things that I, in the winemaking, I just don't get. It's hard, right? Because... How could somebody perceive persimmon notes in a wine if they've never seen a persimmon before? Like it, at, in, at that point, it doesn't exist. So really, when you're when you're trying to think about what is this wine reminding you of, you've got to scan back through that memory bank of all the things that you've come across in your life, and the things that are going to bubble up to the surface and where you're going to have that immediate aha reaction to are those things that are like deeply rooted in nostalgia for you. So again, like I grew up in Orange County. So I have very distinct memories of strawberries because there's strawberry fields everywhere in South Orange County. And when picking season comes, you just drive. You don't need to roll your windows down. You can smell it, right? So that's like burned into my memory. Persimmons is really hard. It's really challenging. I, I really have only run across it in a, in a few scenarios. And so when I run across a wine like Artanat, for example, and I'm smelling it and I'm trying to understand like what I'm smelling and I'm having a lot of difficulty, like the thing that I came closest to using even, honestly, the assistance of an aroma wheel was persimmons. So you take a grape, and the grape is sitting in the vineyard in its cluster, and it's ripening, it's ripening, it's ripening. And when you determine that it's got the right level of acidity and sweetness, 
you will harvest it. And so flavor somewhat locked from a fruity perspective. So if you chomp on that grape, um, you might get some inspiration as to what direction you might go based on how you're perceiving the sweetness and the acidity. Um, and then fermentation kicks in and all sorts of things can happen that maybe take that fruity note and they push it to a direction where it's more persimmon-like versus strawberry-like or maybe persimmon. It's probably more like persimmon versus apricot because they're both tree fruits, right? Can kind of find some similarities, but they're definitely different. It's not like these notes come, like I'm being stupid here, uh, come out of the uh, terroir or, you know, from the earth and they go into the um, into the grapes. It's not like wine is infused in any way. How do they even occur? How can can people agree when they taste wine that it, you know, it's got notes of smoke or tobacco oh, yeah. or, or or any fruit? I mean, like, I, I don't think there's a single wine that I have ever tasted that I could actually tell uh, what the notes are. You can usually agree on things like smoke, tobacco, because those are those are choices from something like oak aging. So there's, and we talk about this in, in the blending class, for example, there are really like three phases of, of the winemaking process that contribute flavors. One, it's your selection of the grapes themselves. So it could be the varietal. So I'll give you an example. So like Merlot and Cab can oftentimes have uh, notes of cherry. Those are almost universally agreeable. And if you know like the clone of the grape, you can even sort of zero in on that a bit further and, and be pretty sure you're going to get those notes. But like a Bordeaux, for example, Bordeaux, maybe from Saint-Emilion, you're going to get some cherry notes. And it's probably going to be more like sour cherry, for example. People can, can usually isolate that within the fruit itself. So the grapes do one thing. Fermentation, depending on what's going on with the type of yeast that's used, if it's native or not, it's like the natural winemaking versus conventional winemaking, um, maybe the type of bacteria that's involved in the process, again, native versus bacteria that occurs within the winemaking facility naturally, not harmful, like all, all good stuff, like those things will conspire to create secondary aromas. Sometimes they're a bit funky and sometimes they're as simple as earthy, so dirtiness. Uh, sometimes it's offensive like cat's pee or, <laughs> or Band-Aid or I like to say like goats, like goat farm. If you've ever had the, the pleasure of walking up to a farm where there are goats and they're making goat cheese, that is, it's very, it's very distinct. And we've all had wines that like, that kind of tasted like that. So that comes from the fermentation process. And then if we want to talk about like, oh, this wine smells and tastes like smoked meats, maybe even like bacony. Some Syrahs have a bacon component when the the wine is aged in a specific type of oak. So if you get vanilla in a wine, that's from the oaking. It's not from the grapes. So that was a stylistic choice of the winemaker to add that flavor note into the wine itself. And they did that through the oaking. So I've got a series of stupid questions now, um, two of them. <laughs> One is um, when you're doing pairings with um, with cheese or meat, would you pair things that the wine has notes of? So, for instance, if it's got vanilla, you would pair it with something that's vanilla, or you would pair it with something that's completely opposite. What's the what's the thinking behind it? I think usually you want to find flavors that are complementary. So, if you love the vanilla aspect of the wine, you will want to try to accentuate it and highlight it rather than disguise it. So not all wines go with all cheeses. I would say that that's why pairings exist. 
uh, in some cases, if you have a fruity wine like a Zinfandel and you pair it with a, a very ripe goat's cheese, like that goat's cheese will completely remove the fruity note out of the wine and you'll be left with something that's a bit like spicy and chalky, which really isn't what the wine tastes like at all on its own. It's just that your palate's been blinded by the lactic acid that exists in that specific type of cheese. And so it's, it's just a chemical reaction. And so it's, it's, it's not complimentary in that aspect. So are the pairings are like universally agreed in the world? Or is it more deciding there and then when you've got that specific wine and the winemaker thinks, oh, this would go with a rack of lamb? I think that's where it comes down to personal preference. I think for the most part, people want to sound smart. So they're probably reading the literature that the experts are putting out. And they're recording, you know, that a, a big, bold cab is supposed to go with a filet mignon, for example, and universally that, that is agreeable. But some experts, it's also delicious. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. And in some cases, though, people, people will say, like, I can't have a red wine with fish. And it's, arguably, that's not true. But if you think about it, yeah, that deep, dark, rich, petite sorrow, that cab is probably not going to go well with Dover Sole. Right. However, like a really light Pinot or Gamay from Burgundy, for example, would be perfect for that. And like you don't need a white wine to go with a white fish. Okay. Well, I've got another stupid question then. Um, things like um, aerators or sure. different um, shape of glasses, do they add to the wine experience? Do they change wine in any way? I don't know that they necessarily change wine. Um, certainly some older wines will benefit from being decanted. So I don't know that if you if you pull out a bottle of like 1995 Malbec from maybe Argentina or, or France, you're probably going to want to let that sit out open, infused with oxygen for at least two hours because the fruity notes are just going to kind of unwind and start to appear out of probably this overwhelming perception of like dirty earthiness like something that just naturally happens with wine over time it starts oxidizing the bottle it tightens up and it almost has like some sort of like gas like quality and it just needs to unwind i guess is the best way to to sort of put it young youthful wines not as much like they're going to be very fruit forward straight out of the bottle they really don't need a lot of aeration to them And so you can put them straight into the glass, drink immediately, and you'll notice that they'll change over an hour or two, certainly. Um, the idea is like you probably want, if you're, if you're going to leave a, a wine out, you probably want to leave it in as large a quantity as possible, just so that like it's really just oxidizing lightly rather than having a drip in your glass like what I've got here and letting that aerate for one to two hours. Like it's going to start to taste more like it's going sour and vinegary quicker than like a whole bottle, for example. Um, but in terms of glass, I mean, there's there's definitely like schools of thought. There are two schools of thought. One that says like it doesn't make a difference. And there's another school of thought that says, no, I mean, if you're drinking a champagne, for example, you need the concentration of bubbles to come straight up. You're really going to focus on like breadier aromas. And so you need those to be really tightly focused. Like there's no real need to throw it in this big bowl like you'd see for Pinot Noirs and Burgundies, for example. Like, because there's not, there's not going to be that whole secondary depth of like herbaceous, earthy, fruity aromas all competing with one another. 
where you'd really need to give it a good swirl and try to like sniff all the corners of the glasses. Yeah, fruitier, fruitier wines, you need a, you don't need the same big glass. Like something a little bit earthier, bigger, richer, or or something more delicate, like a Chinon or maybe like a Pinot Noir. Nice big bowl. Um, you mentioned um, club membership. Yes. Right. Um, I I know it. I am not a club member. I'm I'm pretty sure that I've got enough club memberships to wineries as it is. But um, what does it mean? So just like any other club, especially with wine throughout the California or even the U.S., you're you're basically signing up to get a specific allotment of wine every year. All right, so we do two shipments. So we do a spring shipment and a fall shipment. We're always keeping it fresh. So you're getting a brand new wine before it's released to the tasting room. And if you can commit to that, then you get a discount, right? Because it's helpful. We can basically use our club growth as a barometer for, you know, what should we be investing in grapes this year? So everybody's trying to push club out there so that they, they know what the minimum quantity of wine is that they should be making. And then everything else that they uh, can invest in on top of that, they can either maybe open the doors to the tasting rooms more often or find new distribution sources and, and push wine out into those sources. Hope being that, you know, if you're going to wine country, you'll stop by their tasting room rather than somebody else's because you have that familiarity. So for us instead is, you know, we're trying to build this local LA wine culture. So again, it's all about giving people a reason to come back in. Club is extremely helpful in getting people to feel like they have a stake in your business, right? So as a club member, you get a, a free tasting anytime you come in and you get discounts on all the events that we do on classes, etc. So it's it's really beneficial in that sense. Well, I've got some questions from the audience. Or yeah. well, actually it's from Campbell who does our sound for the podcast and wow. Okay, what is the best value wine? The best value wine. So you're talking about anywhere in general? That's yeah, a tough if you one. went if you went to a store, where would you go and what would you buy? Usually my recommendation to anybody coming through a blending class is the last two questions. First of all, what's your favorite wine? And then how do I pick a good one? Right? So that's why it's really important to understand what you like personally in a wine and what you like about wine. Because if you like something that's really like light, delicate, floral, like you really need to think about what you're tasting in a wine, that's really going to narrow um, the even just like the regions that you're going to want to look at when it comes to choosing a wine. So that may rule out BevMo completely. That may rule out Ralph's completely. It may even rule out Whole Foods. You may need to find a specialty wine store and that carries a specific region of wine to be able to understand whether or not you can find a value wine, right? Because the worst thing that you can do is think that a value wine is monetary and that $10 is a value wine. And you can't think of a single $10 wine you've ever had that was any good. How is that value, right? So one of my recommendations is if you like California wines, stylistically, you know, slightly bolder, slightly fruitier, slightly riper, to me, a great place to start is just walk into Whole Foods, think $25, and basically pick a wine from California at Whole Foods that's about $25 to $30. I guarantee you probably won't be disappointed. Might not change your life, 
but you won't be disappointed. If you go to like $15 or less, the probability which you'll be disappointed, I think, starts to grow very quickly. If we were not going to the blending lab, where else could we go to drink wine in LA? You can go to a lot of places, actually. So I think one of the cool things that I haven't really hammered home on with the blending lab is when we started the blending lab, the only other winery in the city of LA was San Antonio. Fun fact is that San Antonio celebrated their 100-year anniversary the same day that we celebrated our one-year anniversary. That's I don't fantastic. know if that's serendipity or yeah. I always joke they may have been trolling us because they knew we were there. We were like their first source of competition from like an actual like I make wine locally sort of deal. Um, but since then, there's been one other winery that's opened doors down in the Arts District. So you can go there. You can go taste all the wonderful beers that exist down there, even some distilled spirits, and then pop over to, to that winery, taste their wine. Or... You know, there are great wine bars that exist out there, whether you're in like Studio City, Sherman Oaks, Santa Monica, Esther's, for example. Uh, there, are, there are restaurants that specialize in carrying very interesting wines. And there are just other great wine shops like Silver Lake Wine or Lou's Wine Shop where, or Domain LA where they physically just sell bottles or they actually have tasting events where you can find really interesting, unique things. So to me, if I'm noticing like a trend towards wine tasting in LA, it's that you're seeing more of these small, unique wine shops starting to bubble up and catch on. And they offer not only the wine for sale, but actual tastings. So you can taste the stuff before you buy it. One final question. I'm going to open a bottle of wine uh, this evening. It's going to be... I think Pinot Noir. Mm. What should I have it with? Pinot Noir. Oh, man. Well, I think we talked about this earlier, but fish could be a good candidate, certainly. Um, I guess Pinot Noir going maybe a little bit with duck. Definitely would do well with certain types of vegetables. Maybe lighter pastas. Um but also kind of depends on what kind of Pinot Noir we're talking about. Because even Pinot can come from areas where it can manifest as a little bit bigger and bolder and sweeter. Right? So if you're talking about Burgundy or you're talking about Santa Rita Hills, Santa Barbara, on the lighter side of things, keep the food light and fresh if you can. I think for someone like me who doesn't know much about wine, um, I heard pasta and Pinot Noir and I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, I mean... Just off the top of my head, something with like uh, zucchini or a nice squash. Almost like pasta primavera. Probably Sounds pretty great. good. Sounds great. I'm hungry already. One last minute question from our audience, which is Campbell. Um, he wanted to know what kind of music you would associate with wine. Is there specific songs or, or anything like that? That's a great question. All right. So just... If I was going to swing for the fences, you can break wine down into two different components. There's the drinking of wine, and then there's the traveling associated with wine, which is wine country. So, you know, just thinking about driving around Paso, maybe you want to listen to some country. But when it comes to drinking wine, I would say this is a great segue into this idea that um, I don't really have a wine that I, I look to as my favorite wine. And because I believe that wine 
sort of exists to complement your mood, right? So give this example earlier, where if you were going to open a bottle of wine tonight, and you had six to 12 bottles that were all different in front of you, which wine would you choose and why? And I think you'd have to actually ask yourself, how do you feel first? And, you know, based on your mood, if you're happy or you're kind of neutral or you're angry, you you may find yourself gravitating towards different styles of wines to suit those moods. And so similarly, you're probably going to choose a music selection based on your mood as well. And so some of us might be angry. And if we're angry, you know, we need an equally like stern wine to go with it. So we're going to reach for the petite Syrah because, you know, we're already feeling, so we need to feel more. So we're going to grab that big, bold wine. Whereas in some cases we're really pensive and we're, we're thinking about the future or, or could you have done a better job in that presentation? We go for uh, something more subtle like Shinon. And so maybe we're going to need some classical music to, to go along with that Shinon because that might be more appropriate than heavy, heavy metal, for example. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like a great illustration that to me, you should always pair wine with your mood as well as the food even and, and also the company that you're drinking with. I have certain friends that I will only drink big, bold wines with. Kevin, do you have any other questions? No. You just want to drink wine now? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Michael, thank you so much. Thank this you for was, having me. This was amazing. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, we'll he hear more about um, your expansion. Thank you. Hopefully soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's our show for this week. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, add a review to let us know what you think. You can also find us at laisgoodforyou.com. See you next week. <laughs>